Hello and welcome to the June DCM podcast. My name, as always, is Tom Lanay. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. I say this every month and I've checked the stats and we get one or two extra subscribers a month and I want more. So please open up your podcast app, search Digital Cinema Media and click subscribe. Now, last month's guest, uh, Nigel Sharrocks, I introduced him as a titan of the media industry. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that that is a description that fits with our guest this month as well. I'm joined by Jonathan Durden. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. You may know Jonathan Durden because he is the D in PhD, one of the UK's biggest media agencies. He was a founder and president of the company until he left in 2007. And since then, he has embarked on a range of ventures, uh, including launching a new men's skincare brand, which we'll come on to shortly. He's also written a novel. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, it is. Essex uh, Drugs and Rock and Roll. Essex Drugs and Rock and Roll. And he's worked with many other high-profile companies. And now, as part of his wildly varied career, he is a strategic advisor to DCM. Now, let's let's go right back to the beginning, Jonathan. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people will be wondering, how did you start your career in media? Like a lot of people around that time, I fell into it um, because I didn't really know what it was. I didn't know what media was, but I still struggle to some extent with that. Um, the school um, I attended, uh, I, I never, I did my sixth form and then waited for jobs to turn up and merchant banking turned up, which I hated for a year. And then I remembered that my dad took the Daily Telegraph and at the back was a list of all these television stations. So I applied to one of them, Anglia Television, uh, went for an interview. They turned me down. I wrote back saying you've made a terrible mistake. They took me on. Um, what can I say? It's a lesson in, uh, in perseverance. Anglia Television, where, where was that based? In Norwich? Uh, happily, Park Lane, London. Oh, okay. Uh, I was just saying, because I'm from East Anglia. So Bad luck. I thought we could have bonded over that. Oh, we'll have to find no. something else. Uh, what attracted you to a career in media? It was full of young people, and um, I had an expense account. <laughs> an all-important expense account. Indeed. Um, okay, so uh, before you set up PhD, what really drew, drew you to setting up your own media agency? Um, well, because my dad couldn't. Like a lot of us, our fathers are very important uh, figures in our lives, and the one thing he couldn't do was make was make money. And although I wasn't particularly gifted at making money, it, I wanted to have my own business. I didn't really mind what it was. Uh, what actually happened in media was that um, I had a set of skills that weren't really suitable for media. I was not a very good negotiator. I was a television buyer for seven years, and my style was to plead all over the carpet and beg. Uh, and then the the world sort of changed um, and slightly more strategic and creative uh, qualities were valued. And I was surrounded with a lot of people who just couldn't do that. So the world turned to my favour um, and continued to do so right the way through until I was about um, 29, 30, at which point it was my time. And when it was my time, holding hands with my two wonderful partners, we jumped off a cliff and, and opened... Uh, PhD or Patterson Horswell Durden as it was called initially my wife named it PhD she always put me last uh, but as it happened it was a very good name uh, it's quite a ballsy name isn't it PhD yeah, you tried doing it with a company with no clients and no money and people like Nigel Sharrocks, um waiting to take the mickey out of you and uh, you call yourself clever if you fail you're kind of setting yourself up for a lifetime of pain but it did it did also actually mean what we wanted it to mean it was a company that was more about planning and creative ideas than, than table thumping. And we set up just at a time when Zenith had just set up. And the whole world was hurtling towards muscle flexing and 
being thuggery, you know, in, in the buying area. And that was ironic because our industry was getting really interesting at that moment and there was nobody really there to service the vacuum that was had been created and welcome PhD to the world. So you mentioned that you set up PhD in 1990 with David Patterson and Nick Horswell. What are your uh, main memories of that time? Was it an incredibly stressful time for you? Or just was, well, obviously those, those two were obviously hangers-on uh, <laughs> to my talent. Um, I remember that, we, I mean, David and I both worked as joint media directors at WCRS, which is now called Engine. Um, and our first employers were people like Phil Georgiadis and Mark Mendoza, who were sort of buyers. And um, we were very good at bringing in the right sort of talent. And at that time, I'm talking 1989, uh, we were earning you know, over 150K. We had uh, a new BMW, anyone you want, every six months. I had a, my own column in the Telegraph. Um, it was fantastic. You know, I, I thought I was God. Um, well, not really, more like dog than God. Um, and then the next day, we were out. The three of us were in a little loft in Mortimer Street. No clients, no money, um, a phone. Uh, David Patterson was painting the front door on the first day. People were coming in, sort of apologising to the workmen. <laughs> um, and it was scary, really, really scary, but really, really exciting. It was like, I, I know I could never have done it without holding hands with my partners. And it was one of the most amazing journeys I'll ever have in my life. Uh, I don't regret it at all. And if, if it had failed, my wife had said, um, well, I can't bear the thought of being with you if you haven't tried because you'll be unbearable. I'd rather you tried and failed because at least then you can be a postman and see more of the children. And you can't get more support than that from somebody. She was wonderful. Uh, you said you couldn't have done it without your partners. Um, what, is there a sort of sense safety in numbers in that sense? No, it's a safety in knowing your own weaknesses. Um, you're, some of us are not the complete item. You know, we we swap hats as partners. You don't, you don't, you're not cliche. You know, you're not stereotype. Ooh, I'm creative. No, it's not like that. Um, I can be as hard as anybody, or look at a balance sheet, or whatever. But there's just something about not being the complete item and needing complementary people that you can trust. And we'd all worked together in the past, so we worked out all our differences when other people were paying us. And at the moment at which we started, we were. It was us against the world. It was the three musketeers. And, you know, you have someone to cry with and someone to laugh with and someone to celebrate with. And um, those bonds are incredibly close. It, it was like having brothers and I've only got a sister. Um, it was it was a, a very close... You feel every moment of, of, of that part of that journey. It was my time. And at what point, how far into the business did you realise that you were successful? Um, well, the minute we did, we sold it. Uh, we we were uh, six years old when we sold it, which is not very long. We were billing about a hundred million, um, and we sold it to Omnicom because we also mostly sensed that the market was about to change. We had some big business like Prudential. We had HSBC. Uh, we had all of the BBC, and. Um, the world was starting to become very globalised, so you had these major centralisations going on to the global networks. And we were an independent, uh, and a UK independent, um, without much in the way of international capability. Um, and we wanted the business to carry on. We were very proud of it even then. So by that point, there were only two real major players left who hadn't um, 
farmed off their media departments to become independents, and those were Lohoud Spink and Abbott Mead Vickers, and both tried to buy us in the same week. And we chose, funnily enough, we chose the one that offered us less money because, in fact, we all wanted to get up on Monday morning and work with them, whereas Lohoud Spink, we didn't. Um, and we sold the business, when, as I say, when it was turning about 100 million. I left it in 2007, as you said, when it was turning about 5 billion. Uh, up until yesterday, it was turning 10 billion. And uh, by yesterday afternoon, it was turning 12 billion because it won Volkswagen globally, which is a 2 billion win. So whilst I can claim no credit for any of that, or certainly not the latter part, that I do get some pleasure out of a winning formula and the team that we put in are still there. So you said you sold the company in 1996, did you say? Yes. And you continued working for it until 2007. How did your role change after you'd relinquished control of the company or ownership Um, of the company? It changed because my partner David wanted to be a a chief exec of the world. So he went off and did that and lived in New York. Nick just wanted to leave because he doesn't like big companies and he left he always said he'd be there 10 years and he was there 10 years and three weeks um and i hung around um and i was still in the uk i was president um i was more people focused and i had my clients and i I still like very much hands-on i like doing work uh, which is competitive with people so as i say more idea generation um and strategy work which is what i always do and what I hope to do here at DCM. We'll come on to that very shortly. Um, you must have been through some hugely stressful periods in your career. Um, how do you deal with that sort of really high-level stress? That- well, life has a way of throwing stress at everybody. And um, my biggest stress periods are actually not in my career. They're outside of my career, um, which puts everything else into context. So you're actually able to deal with things and be fearless about pretty much everything in life. If, if horrible things happen to you out of time, and that's um, been the case with me. So actually, I'd struggled to think of terrible things that have happened to me in my career. Um, yeah, we didn't win the odd pitch. Funny enough, we didn't win Volkswagen 20 years ago. Um, in fact, slightly less than that, 18 years or something like that. But I remember doing a pitch for all five marks from Audi to Skoda to Seat to Vans to VW. And we were given five weeks to pitch. I put everybody on that. Um, they took 16 weeks to make their mind up and gave it to Mediacom, and I was devastated by that. And so were all the people that worked with us. And um, in fact, that was the cause, that was the last thing that created a company called Naked, because my whole management left to do that. They asked me to join them. I said yes. They changed their minds. Bastards. Not that I mind. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all mates uh, still, those that are alive. Um, but you know what? That's, that's not really trauma, is it? I mean, that's just, well, you win some, you lose some. You do your best. Uh, in terms of stresses, they're generally people-related uh, rather than business rejections. Um, and when you've got a lot of people that you care about working with you, then you take personal responsibilities for their welfare as well as your own, if you're any good. Uh, what do you think are the biggest changes you've seen in the media since when you started and perhaps when you um, left PhD and that then now? When I started, media was the business of making the incredible simple look incredibly complicated in order to justify a career. Uh, It is obviously the other way around now. Um, But there are some things that have come around full circle, programmatic, and 
the whole automation behind what we would have called targeting is uh, very rife and I think quite misguided in many ways because it doesn't um, it doesn't take account of the fact that the fuel for the industry is wastage and that free wastage has been the thing that has created brands and by getting more efficient we're to some extent cutting our own throats now that doesn't mean all programmatic is wrong it doesn't mean the principles are entirely wrong or anything else but it's so blind and going in one direction that that annoys me um other things well um at phd certainly when we started and definitely in the first six years we wouldn't take any money from media owners in the form of added value inverted commas um because i wouldn't be able to sleep at night and nor would my partners uh, we prefer to consider our role as being impartial and to try and do the right thing by clients without any confusion involved so we would always charge more than other people which often meant we didn't win business and that as we all know has become more public in the last few weeks um, and it's a shame because clients are complicit in that it's not just about agencies you know, you have procurement on it who don't look at that aspect of it. Then you look at what they are seen to be paying and everyone gets their knickers in a twist. And it's, it's, I still believe when you're dealing with sums of money, let alone uh, things like public health, but sums of money in this case, it would be better to have a very declared and transparent way of dealing, which means that um, you can trust the advice you're giving because it's not based on how much money you're making. You mentioned that that's... Um become relevant in the last few weeks what are you referring to well publicly in america the report has just come out there's a big hoo-ha in uh, everywhere about it and i don't quite know where it'll lead but it it, it probably means that there is a greater level of mistrust between many clients and their agencies than there's ever been before which is never a very good thing um and particularly as more and more of these services are being taken in-house by brands you worry when you put your life into a sector whether It'll thrive in quite the same way as it has in the past, and I'd like to think it would because it's been a marvellous and amazing career. So when you left PhD in 2007, did you know exactly what you wanted to do, or is it a case of just sitting back and, and uh, taking some time out to work no, out? No, I was a bit lost uh, in terms of my plan. Uh, I went to work at Havas, which wasn't lost, but that was fine. I worked for my dear friend Mark Mendoza. Um, I worked with what is now Lucky Generals and then Miles Cowcraft, a creative advertising agency, as a partner at the same time. So that was quite refreshing. Um, I've written my book, as you said, and I stumbled into Big Brother um, and appeared on Big Brother in 2007, uh, which was a freak show that I fitted in with, clearly. Um, I, can't, I can't say it was my proudest moment, but it was certainly one of my more interesting moments. Um, and then I've had uh, another little uh, daughter and we went to live in Spain for a few years uh, up a mountain with goats, dog poo, chorizo and uh, widows. As far away from Big Brother as possible. No, I wasn't running away from that. I, I actually, well, you can appreciate when you when you have a career and we all do this, you have mortgages, you've got work, you have babies and you miss out on things, you know, quite willingly usually. Who wants to go to a sports day or parent evening? Frankly, I'd rather kill myself. But... Um, I did miss all that first time around with my first two kids and then I had a, a beautiful daughter and uh, my wife and I decided it would be great to spend from when she was one until she was four um, in a foreign country. I've never moved, I've never lived anywhere outside the M25 in my life. 
you know, I've been to a lot of places and seen nothing. And I thought, well, we have a little house in a village and let's go and see what it's like. And sadly, I didn't learn one word of Spanish. But my little now seven-year-old is fluent and my wife was always fluent. But I, uh, I treasure those simple days, you know. And whilst I was up that mountain, I was very flattered by a couple of people that came my way. So I worked with uh, the PR guru, Mark Borkowski, at his company as a partner and would fly backwards and forwards on EasyJet. Thank you very much, Carolyn McCall, um, who was my first client, by the way, at PhD. She was running The Guardian then. She was a group head at The Guardian, to be exact. Um, but I spent I spent a life mostly in Spain, but uh, probably about a month or two months a year flying backwards and forwards for him, doing PR work. Um, and then came back and decided needed to do something new. So, you, as I mentioned at the start, you're now a strategic advisor to DCM. How did that happen? To be honest, I, it really appeals to me the the whole positioning of the of the medium. Really, really appeals to me. I really like Karen. We love the same people, even Sharax, who I've known forty years, um, or especially Sharax. So we had a month trial, and I had a whale of a time, and uh, so I'm still here. And so I'm so like a month probation? Kind of, okay. yeah. And you passed? I passed. Good. And you said you like the positioning of the industry at the moment. Um, what do you mean by that, and what is it that um, excites you about it? Okay, right. Well, uh, as usual, the entire industry hurtles in one direction or another, but everybody tries to do the same thing. What that has resulted in, and not least of all because the public have voted with their feet to some extent, is that for a medium which has been to some extent positioned as the crumbs off the table from broadcast for many, many years, it is now the last bastion of where advertising can actually look good, be appreciated, and people actually pay money to turn their phones off and appreciate creative work as part of their entertainment. Now that is phenomenal. You know, that is such an opportunity. That means that once seen, never forgotten, you can create brand love. You can really affect how people view things. And they are paying money to concentrate on this message as opposed to a fleeting little screen on, on a phone or, or, or on a tablet. And that, for me, means that whilst we have innovation going on and, and we are doing quite a lot with both technology and the nature of the real, the fundamental bit is that cinema's never worked harder and has never been more powerful. And that every campaign that breaks, every brand campaign that breaks with a new piece of creative work, particularly work that one is proud of, should break first in cinema. And then a PR ripple will be created and then other media will tail on after the launch phase. And that's an exciting prospect to go and sell because I don't think that the industry has quite grasped that yet. So there's work to do. But it's true, and it's potent, and it's powerful, and it's motivating for the creative industry who, who foster people who want their work to be seen not just in snippet form, but in long form. And I believe that no ad that appears in cinema should be under 60 seconds, and I think they should be three minutes long, two minutes long. There should be documentaries. There should be all sorts of content. But above all, it should be high quality, and it should be, it should be powerful. So when you first came to DCM, you said you've been here, you've been here three months now, is yeah. it? Yeah. What surprised you most? Very good point. What surprised me most? Um, it was it was a, an environment uh, completely open plan, which is not unusual. In fact, it's quite normal. There are jars of sweets and things. Also, very normal. Just go to Facebook next door. It's exactly the same. 
I think what really what really made me want to work with this team was that it was self-starting and people were happy. Um, there's a caring kind of culture here. Karen is brilliant at fostering the best out of people and getting their energies in a positive way because she cares about the people and that that goes right through the whole company. So everybody is like that. There isn't a great deal of nervousness. There isn't a huge amounts of politics. And we have now got a structure which is very horizontal. So there aren't too many layers and levels, uh, which means that you can start to give people space to express themselves and do it their way. Um, happy in the knowledge that no one's going to tell them off if they make a mistake, if it's done for the right reasons. And and that re that resonates with me because that's the culture that we built at PhD. And I have found to be quite rare. You know, you can go to many companies and find that people are more nervous about their line management and what they think. And the line management's really nervous because they're neither on the coalface nor at the top. And um, you can spend and waste a lot of energy internally without realising that all your energy is not enough to face the world, let alone what's going on in the office. So it was such a relief to walk in here and find that already here. What that meant was that my energies could be spent on making the product better and not worrying so much about sorting out little squabbles internally. What do you think we do well? Look after people, sell the medium, be open-minded and relentlessly positive with what is sometimes a narrow canvas. And not that the opportunity is narrow, that's wide, but there are relatively few weapons that one can use here. You have the foyer, we have various bits of research, we have this massive screen, we can do some sponsorship, we have the gold spot, the silver spot. But that, in the great scheme of things, is not an enormous list of things that one can do. So it's quite hard to keep reinventing the wheel. And I think this team is so positive that they do. And my job is to widen the canvas for them. So um, we have a bit on the podcast where we like to talk about films. We obviously we we, we talk about films uh, a lot in our daily life here. Um, do you get to the cinema much? Well, I used to go to the cinema twice a week on my own at lunchtime. So was that just kind of a, a relaxation thing? Well, it wasn't because I was thrown out of the office. <laughs> it was it was um, it was like a holiday in the middle of the day. So if I'm having a stressful morning. I would take myself off to the cinema across the road, which is in Tottenham Road, an Odeon, and I would watch whatever was on at one o'clock. Didn't matter what it was, I saw some unspeakable crap. What's the, what was the worst film you saw? Uh, Super Mario Brothers, uh, <laughs> which made me suicidal. Um, and also sitting there on my own with a tuna sandwich watching Super Mario Brothers at lunchtime was not a great experience. But having said that, I would stand up at whatever time my next meeting would be, so it could be quarter past two, obviously, and I'd miss the last third of the film. But if it was really good, I'd come back at a timed moment later on in the evening and see the rest of it. And I also used the cinema a lot with my daughter when we had our, our trauma. Um, my daughter, who's a 16, who was 16 at the time, she's 29 now, uh, and I would go off to the cinema uh, twice a week and I'd be her friend. And we would bond over films and go to Wagamama afterwards in Islington. And it's it's uh, I look back on that with great, great nostalgia. So I've used the cinema at very important times in my life, not just for random entertainment. So it's important to me. It's another reason I'm here. Have you seen anything recently? Uh, what was the last thing I saw? 45 years, I think, was oh, the last gosh. thing I saw. Which a good is one. A, which, well, I didn't want to go as usual. 
because uh, I'm a bloke. And there's no car chase in it, just to warn you. <laughs> um, Charlotte Rampling and Tom Courtney. And my wife said we should go and see it. And I thought, okay, fine. Got to be open-minded. Can't be grumpy all the time. Um, and I talked about that film for far longer than the film went on after it was over. It moved me. It was brilliant. I wish I'd seen it in a curzon, uh, in a way. But it was just brilliant. It was like being at the theatre. I love that kind of movie. Um, and I have my own genres like everybody. Is there anything you're looking forward to? Well, I'll tell you what I am going to see definitely, and that is Independence Day Resurgence, because that's a film, the original one, I've seen maybe 30 times. You know, I'm a creature of habit. So when my little one was little and she watched Peppa Pig 15 times a day, I'd watch it with her, and uh, I didn't get bored. And if I see a film over and over, I don't get bored, and I have been waiting for a sequel on that one for a very long time. Ditto, Jason Bourne, um, that kind of that kind of uh, film. And I do love anything animation. So, you know, you stick me in front of Kung Fu Panda or I loved it up. I know it's old, but Christ, that was we'll, brave. We've got Finding Dory soon. Oh, Finding Dory. No, I didn't like that one. I didn't like Nemo. <laughs> oh, you didn't like Nemo? No. How's that happen? Oh, well, I, I went at uh, the wrong time and it was the wrong subject. Oh, okay. And I took the kids and I, I had to be carried out crying. It was awful. So I'm not going back, thanks. Okay. So you've got uh, and I also didn't like it very much. I didn't think it was great. So we've got Jason Bourne on the 27th of July. Yeah, Finding okay. find Nemo, which you're not going to... Finding Dora, I'm not which you're not going to see one. on the 29th of July. Well, you've seen Jason Bourne that week. But we've got Independence Day on the 23rd of Jule, June, the same oh, day God, as the... God, you're good. The same day as the European referendum. Is that, is that a coincidence? Yeah, probably. We all need a bit of... Uh, bit of help we'll wrap this up very shortly but just going back to uh, more more broadly what is the best story you have from your time in media okay well the best story i can think of right now was a, a phd um and we had a pa who was brilliant i mean she looked like she looked like i can't she looked like the lloyd's horse you know i mean she was just magnificent and she was my PA and my partner David's PA. And um, she was a fantastic friend. She was the life and soul of the party. She brought so much positivity, but she wasn't necessarily the best PA. And I remember she sent out a letter to all our customers, 130 of our customers, all our clients. And it began, Dear Clunt, um, which didn't really go down that well c-l-u-n-t c-l-u-n-t which is trying to write client yes um which obviously you know you don't get a promotion for doing that on the other hand you don't get fired either we we use the word uh, all the time after that for people that, for clients that become difficult or fire us become clunts um that sort of thing i always find hilarious um and of course there are other stories but i don't really want to mention them now i thank you and finally, I said that was finally, but this one was finally. What advice would you give to someone starting out in the media now? Um, I would say do it um, because change is good. Change is, is something which is phenomenally quick. And the um, the best thing about our industry is now you don't necessarily have to do your time. I also work with something called Lab Bible, for instance, and they're 25 years old. It's been going four years and it's a phenomenon. And if you start your own company or you get involved with a, even a big established corporation, those barriers have come down. Um, you know, in a world where people don't really know what's going on or where they're going, 
um, experiences of lesser value and therefore if you are young, ambitious and are into media in its broadest sense, fully boots, come on in. The water's lovely. We did say we would mention your new range of skincare. Products. Oh yes, this is very important for all you men out there. Um, I've created a range of products. It's, it dawned on me that we men are very badly served. I remember talcum powder, you know. My dad used to use it. And My I, dad still does. You see? Your dad still does. And we all forgot to use it because we all discovered showers. Do you know that men only on average take three baths a year? But we obviously shower most days. Also, we wear black underpants and talcum powder really is not a good look. Now... We have moisturisers, we have cleansers, but they are women's products with men's labels on them. Yet we have nothing for our balls. And this is a crime in my view, so we've invented a gel. You can put it on and it's called Below the Belt Grooming for Men. Fresh and dry balls, oh yes, fresh and dry balls. Use it every morning. If you use a deodorant and an antiperspirant under your arms, why the hell haven't we got products for in our pants? Where it is dark, it is hot. It is chafing, we are on a bike, we are running, we're in the gym, we're just living. Really, this is outrageous. So for on behalf of all modern men, we have created a range of products. We've got nine new products coming out in June uh, this month. And um, I thank you very much. Yes, your balls are safe in our hands. <laughs> That's the end of the ad break. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, this month's decent broadcast brought to you by... Below the belt grooming. I thank you. <laughs> um, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, my name's Tom Linnae. I'll be back next month. Uh, thanks for joining me, Jonathan, and I will see you all next month. Or you'll hear me all next month. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>